0: To Mind, Crime, Limits show with me, Swinton Dobson, and him, Tim Patton. Today we're joined by Keith Preston to discuss, is anarchism reactionary or progressive? Tim, why is that even a question?
1: I want to bring up why I sort of got to this question here. A few days ago, Keith posted a uh, post, post on Facebook comparing the, the mega yahoos at the Capitol and the BLM writers over the summer. And he stated that none of them had a clue. And we're just blowing off steam, sort of engaging in Cartasis almost. Uh, and I agree entirely. Uh, the plan part, or the lack thereof, uh, is something which I agree with entirely. Uh, the uh, which is something that McIntyre, who wrote a book called *After Virtue* about 40 years ago, and that's one of his primary arguments: is the idea that most, you know, Enlightenment era ideologies have failed. Uh, the first of which he goes after, of course, is uh, Marxism. Um, you know, he says for all the for all the uh, for all the criticisms that Marxists wield at the current society, they view out of this rotten society a new society will be formed, um, and they're very much committed to progress. The dictionary definition of progress is a movement toward a goal or to for a further or higher stage. Um, so, if you want, I mean, so most of the uh, most of the Marxist project, the Soviet Union, Cuba, North Korea, China, they, if you want to describe them on narrow terms. They succeeded. For example, Cuba can resist American influence. The Soviet Union won World War II in the East with a giant jihad. Um, the, uh, the Cuba creates more doctors. There are sort of narrow technical areas where where the Marxist states have succeeded or done better than the West, or Western liberal capitalists, whatever you want to call the air quote West states. Um, I mean, for many years, the Russian Federation had better space technology, arguably. So there are certain technical areas. And, you, so, so if you want to, s- by narrow technical grounds, they're, they've done better. But for this sort of beatific vision, to use the sort of Christian parlance uh, of progress, you know, the sort of city on a shining hill, the Soviet Union did not end up that way. Cuba did not end up that way. Um, none of those products ended up that way. Um, they were sort of, and actually today, they're almost somewhat borderline reactionary societies. I'm going to also include liberalism. You know, McIntyre would be also a critic of liberalism as well. Uh, John Gray, writing in the early t- 2000s, wrote the interesting article titled the "End of the End of History." And his idea uh, uh, sort of mirrors Peter Zeihan's, who I found him through you, Keith. Is the uh, you know the, the sort of U.S. global system is dependent on American global power, which is not going to be permanent. Um, and actually, the invasion of Iraq was sort of the zenith of this. Is which the idea of creating a Jeffersonian Swedish Republic in the Middle East failed miserably. So that's another failure. Eastern Europe the fall of the Berlin Wall, I mean, maybe Poland or East Germany, but the other societies are sort of quasi reactionary societies at this point. So that failed. This sort of expansion of democracy in the East. Again, if you want to argue on narrow technical grounds, yes, they they succeeded. Um, um, and another ideology that failed is feminism. You know, it's worth pointing out, like, for example, my grandparents on my one side worked in a shirt factory. So it, glorious. But that's also true now. I mean, people work, women work at Walmart. And women work as waiters, but that was true beforehand. So, feminism as a sort of a big capital I ideology failed to bring about some sort of shining the hill. Civil rights in the US Civil War also failed on broad terms as well. Uh, I mean, again, you have a black middle class, but you have a bigger underclass, you know, and actually people like Condoleezza Rice and others have worked as the, you know, the, Barack Obama, they worked as sort of the center of the American empire. Um, uh, so, 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 and actually recently had the COVID, the war on COVID and that's another sort of technocratic liberal idea, which has also somewhat failed. Uh, you know, the 15 days turned into months. And again, I don't, maybe in the terms and condition, the vaccine was only supposed to do X efficacy, but even that there've been a number of breakthrough cases. And again, maybe in the narrow white, black and white, uh, terms and conditions, They've stated this. And so we see a long listening of failures in the past 80 years. Um, Again, on grand scales. On narrow technical grounds, Cuba creates more doctors, resists American tyranny. But that's not really a big goal. So so first of all, Keith, which leaves the only ideology left is anarchism. And you, I'd say, is one of the best defenders of it. Uh, This is someone uh, alive today. Um, actually, and some people like Chomsky have arguably been co-opted in a way, although not entirely. And, of course, you have the right anarchists as well, the more reactionary ones. So do you agree, first of all, with the general account of failures over the past 60 to 90 years of ideologies to bring about some sort of change, Keith? Do you, would you agree with that account? I've been listed a variety of them. Keith?
2: Well, I think it's a complicated question because, um, you know, the... Things like success and failure are relative terms when we're talking about some of these questions. If we look at it in terms of did any of these philosophies achieve all of the great things they were supposed to achieve? um, No, they never really achieved what their vision, you know, their their, um, founders or originators envisioned. Uh, I think we have to consider that most modern ideologies are rooted in Enlightenment thinking or or derivative of it um, or perhaps in some cases are a reaction against it. But out of the Enlightenment uh, came this idea that, you know, human beings were perfectible, that you could use reason, education, science, social progress, all of these things to uh, essentially change the human species so that human beings could learn to live without violence, or crime, or war, or oppression, or, you know, all, all of these kinds of things. And if you go back and you read a lot of the utopian writers from, say, the uh, the Enlightenment era through the 19th century, even into the early 20th century, uh, you, you find some pretty far-out thinking. I mean, um, like some of the early socialists, for example, the early utopian socialists, like Charles Fourier, they had this idea that in the future there would be— um, Uh, rivers of lemonade and and things like that. Or, or, you know, you had uh, science fiction writers that had this kind of utopian paradigm where people would live in domed cities with controlled climates and that kind of stuff. And, you know, some of the more far-fetched ideas that came from that time period were never realized. But then more modest things did happen. Um, if If you look at the world that we live in today or, or at least that people in developed or reasonably developed countries live in today and compare it with the world of say 1850, we do see that we, uh, we do kind of live in a science fiction world compared to, to that. If we look at say the world of 1850, you know, who, who in 1850 would have envisioned the internet, uh, being able to do things like this podcast, uh, space travel, uh, you know, airliners, uh, you know, nuclear weapons, or, you know, all, all of these kinds of things that we have today. So, you know, relative to historical experience, modern civilization has created things that are like a science fiction world compared to what had previously been the norm. But then the, some of the hopes that were associated with those things never really came into being. Um, if you look at, uh, um, for example uh, socialism you know we we don't live in workers paradises today if anything class relations and labor relations are going backward in many parts of the world uh if you look at something like civil rights uh as as people on the progressive end of the spectrum will be the first to tell you we don't have perfect equality of races or or whatever or genders or, or any of these uh, categories um uh, and, of course, the, during that time period, during the last, say, century and a half, two century, there have been an awful lot of negatives, uh, the two world wars, uh, you know, the ad, advent of uh, mass warfare, total warfare, you know, nuclear weapons, atomic bombs, uh, a lot of other things as well. Um, so, you know, it's sort of, it's been sort of a mixed bag. I, I don't really think we can say all of these older philosophies entirely failed but they never achieved what their originators wanted them to achieve.
1: So, Keith, do you think Steven Pinker is right insofar as the Enlightenment has succeeded? You know, for example, more people have running water and running toilets. But you also point out other areas, sort of liberal democratic capitalism, welfare state capitalism, which is a mouthful, but I think that's sort of a way to describe it. Do you think it has succeeded there? And you also bring up the sort the of downsides. There's certain phenomena today that wouldn't be possible. You know, the left's favorite genocide of the right could never have happened without railroads and modern technology. And also mass incarceration was probably could have never happened without um, uh, modern wealth and institutions as well. So there's other things that have come along, um, um, which really get the sort of primitivist tendencies that pop up. Um, Would you say someone like Steven Pinker, who wrote a book that's sort of famous for thousands of tables in there, do you think he is right, so to speak?
2: Well, I think that he's right in the sense that, yeah, it's true that in modern societies around the world, the ones that are the most developed, you typically have a higher um, level of uh, living standards for most people. You have longer life expectancy. You have less uh, infant mortality. You have fewer deaths from childhood diseases or preventable diseases. You have better sanitation systems. You have higher literacy rates, at least on a general level. Um, The average person is probably less or probably more protected from violence uh, than what you would have found in some older societies. Um, at the same time, parallel to that, you find that there's a great deal more regulation of life, um, you know, the, the, you, uh, the idea, you know, just about anything that you do in a, in a society like the United States today, and I, I would imagine it's similar in England, you have to have a government permit for it um, in ways that wouldn't have even been conceived of in older societies. Um The the uh, the technology that we have for surveillance now, uh, the idea that we have these cameras everywhere that follow us around and and not only that, but satellites and and other uh, methods of surveillance, electronic surveillance that would have been inconceivable in older societies. Um, The You know, libertarians will point out the tax rates that we typically pay in modern societies, although parallel to that is the fact that aggregate wealth is also higher. Um, So, you know, like everything else, I would suppose it's been a mixed bag. You know, everything has its price and a lot of the positives that have come about in modern societies and under the rule of modern ideologies have brought a price along with them. Um, you know, all, all in all, I would say that the Enlightenment was successful in the sense that yeah most, most countries around the world are liberal democracies now that are have their rooted enlightenment uh, philosophy. Uh, certainly the market economy has become dominant. industrial civilization has become uh, dominant. We see the you know the prevalence and domination of science, science has eclipsed religion. Uh, you know, we see uh, technology uh, helping people overcome problems like you know better surgical techniques and on um, healthcare and that kind of stuff. So, so in that respect, the enlightenment worked. You know, but not without cost. I mean, there, you know, any 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 social progress or if, if you define it as progress that that ever takes place always has some kind of cost associated with it. In fact, I wrote a book a few years ago called. Uh, thinkers against modernity, and it's a collection of essays on thinkers uh, that have criticized modern civilization in various ways, uh, usually from some sort of conservative or reactionary perspective. Uh, And the reason I'm interested in that is that it's always interesting to go back and look at different sides of historic uh, conflicts and look at what the losers had to say, you know, the people who ended up being on the losing team. Well, did they actually have a point? Uh, you, you can find a lot of people from past time saying, well, look, if you do this, uh, if you change this, if you implement this, this is going to be the consequence. And if you go back and see what they had to say, often they were right. Uh, so the question is, you know, was the consequence worth the perceived social or, or whatever advancement that accompanied the changes that took place?
1: So Keith, um, you seem to be defending the Enlightenment, um, and actually the modern managerial state is never a sort of product of the Enlightenment, which you've talked about at length before as well. Um, which goes back to of my first question. You say that the the Capitol writers and the BLM yahoos didn't really have a plan because there isn't a plan. Um, if if you know, you get the sort of social democrats like Sam Cedar or Ben Burgess. Um, who sort of attacks, you know, right-wing libertarians at being yahoos themselves, thinking you can get rid of the regulatory state. Um, so so then then do you think those, the sort of protesters there, are just letting off steam and sort of, uh, are just sort of, you're almost sounding almost quasi, like sort of like a sort of standard conservative here. Like, I mean, again, you could say, well, they should be allowed to do it in theory. Um, but in a few days, the whole the order will just reemerge. And you know the, the Walmart will get its ship back in order, and so will the capital. Um, um, uh, you seem to be almost you almost defending the system in a way. Uh, if, if this is the system that cr- creates the wealth, um, and how does that relate to sort of broader anarchism? If you're sort of defending all the sort of fruits of the Enlightenment, and you can debate whether the state created the wealth or the free market created the wealth. You know, you have a book like *The Entrepreneurial State*. Uh, but Joseph, on, you also know, the state also is a some of the things the state creates are menaces. Uh, 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 you know, whether or not the virus is created by a research lab is a interesting question. But nuclear weapons were created by state scientists and probably wouldn't have been created privately. So you can sort of get into in-between fights over where exactly this technology emerges, uh, whether it comes from private capitalism or sort of state social democracies, the planned economies. Uh, but if you can sort of overthrow this system it just seems like we're going to be replaced by roughly the same system. Um, so, so, so I made that point there. And, and then more broadly, would you say anarchism is a more reactionary or more per- progress or furthering the goal, which is already started here? Um, so I made a point, and then it's sort of a question there. Keith?
2: Well, um, as, for, as to whether I'm defending the, the legacy of the Enlightenment, I, I guess it comes down to it being a value judgment. Know, it depends on whether you think the advantages are, are better than the uh, the consequences. You know, I, I think that's largely an individual value judgment. I don't know how that can really be quantified. Um, as far as what the comments that you're describing, that I where I described the um, the riot at the Capitol and then the BLM riots and all that kind of stuff. What I was saying is that the people in participating in that have no kind of plan for what kind of society they actually want to have once they tear down the social structures they're protesting against. Um, you know, I the, uh, in the case of the rioters at the Capitol, they they seem to have a wide range of motivations. You had everything from the folks who think that some secret cabal of satanic pedophiles are running the government, to those who think the election was being stolen uh, and that Trump was the real winner, and all of those kinds of things. It, that milieu that, you know, you just seemed to be a Hodgepodge of, of those particular cultural and political sectors, so I don't know that they really had a whole lot of agreement on uh, what they were trying to achieve. Other than I guess they wanted Donald Trump to still be president. Um, and, you know, if they had been successful in you know driving the, the government out of D.C., I, I don't think they would have had any kind of plan as to what to do next. Uh, they just would have been uh, sitting around really saying, "Well, what now?" Uh, and, and the same is true with the, the rioters over, over George Floyd and all of that. Um, when, when you look at some of what their, um, um, demands are to the degree that they make coherent demands, uh, sometimes they'll talk about actual reforms, like they want to, uh, you know, have put more restrictions on when the police can use lethal force or, you know, things like that, you know, all the way over to things like abolishing the police altogether, uh, you know, more, more extreme views, um. Uh, but I don't know that any of them really have any kind of plan for what kind of what society itself would look like if they you know, became politically hegemonic. Um, a lot of it seems just very reactive. Uh, you know, they, they, they don't that doesn't really seem to be an end game. Um, since we're talking about the issue of whether anarchism is reactionary progressive, I think one issue there is that there's really not just one type of anarchism. And it's not just one approach to anarchist philosophy. Um, You you have a branch of anarchists called anarcho-primitivists who want to do away with modern technology, who think of themselves as followers of the Unabomber or or characters like that or John Zerzan. you know, you could argue that that's the most reactionary philosophy there is, you know, like like somebody who believes we should go and live like the people that we see, you know, in the, the uncontacted tribes around the world, like the folks in the North Sentinel Islands or whatever or the remote Amazonian tribes, you know, somebody who thinks that's what, you know, that's what the norm ought to be. You could argue that's about as reactionary as it gets. Um, uh, on, the, you know, on the other hand, I know a lot of anarcho primitivists who think of themselves as progressive, you know, which I don't you know, really know how they reconcile that, but, you know, that's how they see it. Um, you know, you, you certainly have certain types of anarchists, uh, certain anarchists of the right who think of themselves as, co- as conservative. They think of, Government is something that is antithetical to tradition or bourgeois values or even more conservative traditional values. And Then you've then you've got anarchists that are sort of like you know proponents of an uh, extreme proponents of the Enlightenment philosophy, uh, where it, you know it's everything is you know almost like a Jacobin type of, of, of uh, outlook. So and I guess whether you know anarchism is or reactionary progressive would be dependent on which of those. Paradigms you hold to, so there's a lot of different ideas on that among anarchists. Um, the, you know, some I've heard some, you know, theorists of the state, uh, defenders of the state, say, well, anarchism is the most reactionary idea there is because you know they want to they want to go back to like things were at the dawn of history before humanity have had states. That point of view sees the state as a civilizing force. Now I don't agree with that, but but that's how that uh, particular outlook is is. Um, is articulated um so it's i then this in turn gets into questions like how do you actually interpret history you know is history progressive that's another idea that came out of the enlightenment in fact it's one of the aspects of the enlightenment that i tend to be the most skeptical of because it seems like first of all you know how you define progress is once again subjective also you know when you look at things that are touted as progress well, allow alongside all of that was a lot of things you could con- certainly consider to be regress you know like the 20th century okay so women got the vote in the 20th century yeah we also had two world wars that were like the biggest wars in history and genocides and blood purges and you know all these other kinds of things was that progress as well um so um it's um, the idea that history is progressive i think is something that i tend to be more skeptical of you know i tend to think history simply happens it unfolds you know human beings can improve their own condition over time in certain ways through effort uh, like inventing better medicine or you know healthcare technology or whatever but at the same time there's always going to be negatives you know sometimes the negatives may be compounded by Other things that are considered progressive in other ways, you know, like modern technology has given us better healthcare. It's also given us nuclear weapons. So, you know, it's sort of a paradox.
0: Keith, if um, the United States was to break into uh, thousands of different sort of anarchist uh, communities, uh, similar to your uh, vision of pan-anarchism, if you were to uh, guess, and it would obviously be a guess, um, how many of these anarchist societies do you think would be broadly progressive or liberal? And how many of them in the current United States would be uh, more uh, conservative uh, or, or or reactionary? Uh, the reason I ask for one thing is a, a lot on the uh, left will criticize you for being uh, an apologist for fascism because uh, oh you, you, you can allow the, the fascist community to operate. Um, now, obviously, there'd have to be a huge ideological um, change for this to happen. But supposing that you know everybody just ceased being a sta- a statist of some description, but kept the rest of their ideology intact, how do you think the United States would look?
2: Well, fortunately, we actually have test markets for that. Um, we, I, I think, the big qualification is the one you mentioned. If there's no other change other than just the state evaporates and there's no other change in cultural norms or, you know, intellectual paradigms or anything like that or technological developments. I, you know, th- Those are all important qualifications. But uh, if you look at a map of American electoral results, what you typically see is that um, the blue sections, the left leaning sections tend to be smaller in number but they tend to be areas that are more heavily um, populated. And whereas if you see the red zones that are tend to be more conservative, um, they tend to be larger in size, but more sparsely populated. And if you remove, I've seen maps like this where they actually remove the, uh, where they actually control for population in terms of the coloring and all of that kind of stuff. And when you you control for uh, population distribution, what you see is that red and blue zones are fairly even, and you have a lot of, uh, I won't say white zones because the, that raises other implications. But I'll say gray zones. You'll have a lot of gray zones where there's really not any people. Uh, so the U.S. population is split about down the middle between blue-leaning and, and red-leaning. Uh, and I think that that's kind of what it would look like, you know, again, with that important qualification that you made that uh, – there's no other changes. I think if, say, every county in, in the United States became sort of the equivalent of a, a micronation or city-state like Monaco or something like that, uh, about half of them in terms of you know, population distribution would be uh, blue or, and, and the other half would be red, or perhaps there would be a greater number of reds, but the blue zones would be the most heavily populated. And then I think you would also see breakdowns into micro tribes beyond these two big tribes. You know, I think that, um, you know, in, in the red zones you also have the black belt, uh, which is African American, and the large cities you can those tend to break down into different ethnic enclaves. And uh, in fact, there was a map of California I saw recently that had been designed where where it broke it was broken down on the basis of ethnic. Uh, population. And what you see is that while California is probably the most diverse of any of the states in terms of population, you also see people grouping off into all these different ethnic enclaves. For example, if you look at a map of the Los Angeles area, you'll see there's a Cambodian enclave and an Iranian enclave and a, a, a you know a rocky enclave or, or whatever um and I, so i think you'd see all these different kinds of ethnic and cultural and, and religious and political enclaves developing um and then you also have different uh, the proliferation of different kinds of subcultures um uh, where um you know you've got like a big uh, drug culture in certain places in northern california and uh, we have a drug culture everywhere but i mean in, but in terms of people for whom their whole life is around, revolves around drugs you have uh, sections of Northern California, Colorado, of Colorado, and all of that where you know the marijuana culture and all that stuff is is uh, the norm. So I, I think that's kind of what it would look like. It, it, it would kind of look like what I just outlined.
1: Keith, you stated that your one critic of anarchism stated that anarchism is the most reactionary philosophy, um, and it views the state as a the critic viewed the state as a civilizer. Do you think the state is a civilizer or is the state like the heir of the Enlightenment, so to speak, or the uh, and the state is an uncivilized entity that needs to be civilized? Uh, w- w- why do you uh, would, why do you disagree with that critic who states that? I mean, if you ask the person on the street he got rid of the state, you'd have <clears> – <throat> although that might be changing. But if you ask the person on the street in the developed world, um, they wouldn't say that. Uh, they would say that the state is a civilizer. That's sort of a common view, I would think. I think that up with polling, but I would intuitively assume that's a primary view, like, what would happen if you got rid of the state, you have anarchy in the streets. Um, so do, you, do you think the state is a civilizer? And if not, why don't you think that way?
2: Well, I go back a lot further than the Enlightenment. I wouldn't say that the state is an error of the Enlightenment. I'd say it's more of a, uh, an error of uh, the ancient Mesopotamia, of the, of the dawn of history. Uh, there's some very good work in the field of anthropology on this by a guy named James Scott, who is a professor of anthropology at, uh, I think, Yale, and he's written quite a bit about the origins of the state, about how the state first started to appear in ancient Mesopotamia in the areas that are known as Egypt and Babylon and, and all of that, Samaria, and the state you know, I mean, his his theories on of anthropology based on his anthropological research more or less validate what anarchists, libertarians, some radical classical liberals, even some socialists uh, have always said about the origins of the state, and that is that the state ultimately arose through a process of plunder and conquest during the uh, agricultural revolution that you uh, the state emerged because some people were going out and conquering and enslaving and just dis, dis, uh, dispossessing other groups. And out of that, you started to see the emergence of static uh, societies with these kinds of class and political hierarchies, and and then the emergence of state religions that created uh, uh, an aura of legitimacy for the state system. Um, and we start to see that kind of system evolving back in. Uh, uh, ancient Egypt you know, about 5,500 years ago, and, and, and Babylon, Samaria, um, Alcadia, some other ancient civilizations. Uh, and that's more or less the system that we've inherited ever since. I mean, each each new epoch or generation or, or era or whatever is, has more or less retained that system in some form, uh, even if there have been changes along the way. Uh, you know, we may not, you know, have... Um, you know, human sacrifice to the sun god or whatever, that we, or we might not literally believe that the, the, the head of state is a divine being, uh, but we still have the same kind of uh, system of, of exploitive elites, you know, a, a state system that has some kind of ideological superstructure that uh, supposedly opposes the legitimacy of the state, uh, so nothing much has really changed in 5,500 years. I mean, lots of little things have changed, and some medium-level things have changed, but, uh, and, and have changed, but the, the core concept of what the state is hasn't changed. Um, the, the, the big question is if we could undo history and we could go back and um, say, well, what if you know, so the, the beginning of civilization had not been based on conquest, but had been based on, say, voluntary cooperation, voluntary exchange, uh, free association, you know, mutual aid, voluntary federation, you know, all of these other ideas that anarchists are in favor of. What would what would have come about? Well, we would have had anarchism of some kind. Um, so it, it's kind of like the this idea of you know, the state is what you get when you don't have the other things that I just described. Um, And in that way, I think the state is comparable to something like crime. Uh, You know, there's this thing what we, you know, like you you could certainly argue that um, one of the things that I've heard apologists for the state say is that the state is inevitable. The state is natural. You know, they they tend to compare the state to something like the family. You know, they they think the state is like an extended family. Uh, You know, they have these kinds of organic theories of the state. I've heard a lot of Traditionalists who are, say, monarchists and, and thinkers like that make this kind of argument, and you know, liberal thinkers will make sort of a, a watered down version of the same argument, where you know, the state is not a family, it's a social contract, or a, you know, a, a something like that. Um, but I, I don't really buy any of that. I mean, you know, the state is basically what the what, is basically the result of what would be considered crime in any other context. Now, of course, you could also argue that, well, crime is certainly a naturally occurring thing. You know, it's, uh, you know, there's every society that's ever existed has had crime on some level. Uh, And, of course, crime is somewhat subjective. You know, things that are considered crime in some societies aren't considered crime in other societies. But most societies generally have norms where you're not supposed to go looting, you're not supposed to, you know, burglarize somebody else's house, you're not supposed to kill somebody if you want their tennis shoes, uh, you know, th- those kinds of things. Um, most rules, most societies have rules like that, but, but uh, what becomes the state is really organized criminal activity on a large scale. Now, the question is, while that may be something that does occur naturally in nature, that doesn't mean that we should simply uh, resign ourselves to it and say, well, whatever will be, will be. Because you could take that argument with natural disasters. You could say, well, you know, hurricanes happen, so, you know, why ever bother to build any flood walls or, or uh, you know, or tornadoes happen, so, you know, why bother with, you know, tornado warning sirens or, you know, or, uh, you know, earthquakes happen, so, you know, don't bother with any earthquake insurance, anything like that. And I, and I think that's where a lot of the... Uh, arguments for the state go wrong. You know, they, they have this argument that, well, that's just seems to be the way it always is, or it just happens. So therefore it must be a good thing. You know, I mean, it's kind of, I mean, you could say that about disease. Well, there've always been diseases. People still get diseases. So, you know, why bother to do any medical research or, uh, invent, uh, better, uh, drugs for diseases or better treatments or better surgical techniques? Why not just say, well, disease will happen. And, um, and just let it be. Uh, so yeah, I guess that's kind of you know my, how I approach the anarchism from a more uh, reflective or philosophical philosophical perspective.
1: If the state is a criminal organization, which the you know right libertarians like Hoppe and Socrates for that matter more or less agrees with, uh, why 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 hasn't it withered away? And one of the points that McIntyre makes in his book is that you know that that that, that power co-ops absolutely. Um, so, you know, on the road to power, a lot of anarchists, and I actually discussed this with Todd Lewis and Brenton Langle like three three years ago as well, that on the road to power, they're more, they're very radical and pure and in power. They're less radical and more co-opted and just sort of, and actually in some ways it's a virtue when they become sort of mild managerial bureaucracies. And that's never a point that uh, McIntyre makes. So if you, if you view the state as a criminal organization, you know. Why hasn't it gone away? I mean, you, you should have made a point that crime is, in a way, natural. and you know, The state is just a sort of the ultimate, you know, form of criminal. So there's a good joke that says, you know, what do you call a few th- thieves, a gang? What do you call an organized ban, you know, a government? It's uh, a common joke. Uh, uh, there's other sort of jokes about which basically the same rough punchline. Um, and if it's just kind of crime. You know, this becomes tricky because a lot of them will, will say, well, we want justice, but we want justice through the existing state uh, uh, and actually this this showed up in the sort of Foucault Chomsky debate where Foucault was saying that you know he, he, he's not doing the name power not justice. not injustice. He doesn't do justice isn't view justice justice itself is sort of you know, by who whos justice so to speak is called uh, uh, so so anarchism itself this is one of the things I like about it it's fairly pure it's sort of a sort of sort of an idea against unjust authority uh, but it seems like in some ways, you know, 500 years ago, uh, you had some authorities, but now they actually have arguably more control over our lives. You know, in, in some ways, the mass surveillance state, for one thing. Um, I mean, and this is why, you know, for example, the Mennonites and Amish, they probably have less You know, in certain groups in like Peru or certain groups and certain uncut groups might have more air quote freedom. By not being, you know, bought into the sort of system of banking and surveillance and internet and so forth, which is a kind of weird tendency. So maybe 500 years ago, people had more freedom. Um, so the state hasn't, arguably, state power has grown, although in some ways, freedom has grown too. Okay, of course, all this is dependent on definitions of words. But I do, I don't think we can sort of get too much bogged in. I think words have some kind of agreed upon meaning in itself. So why hasn't the state withered? way and more precisely a lot of if i understand correctly historically marxists and anarchists generally well at least left anarchists and marxists generally agreed at least on goals um but as i said as i stated early on the projects just sort of turned into some version of welfare state capitalism of some version and they had their merits and demerits but nonetheless they, they, they seem to be more of the same would you agree with that question and, and why hasn't withered away if it's so common? Keith?
2: Yeah, well, older forms of the state have withered away. Uh, we don't really find uh, the kind of state systems that we found in antiquity as much uh, anymore. Um, in fact, I, I would argue that the totalitarian regimes of the 20th century, were basically an effort to resurrect the kind of systems you saw in antiquity, uh, where, uh, you know, instead of, only instead of worshipping the emperor as a godlike being, you know, they're simply given godlike qualities, you know, like the Fuhrer Principle or the, you know, Dear Leader or something like that. I mean, you know, the way that Kim Jong-un is, is revered and elevated as this kind of quasi-divine figure in North Korea, I mean, that's what a lot of ancient states were like. Uh, so that's nothing new from a historical perspective. Uh, so those that kind of thinking isn't quite as common, or or to the degree that it is, it's it's watered down a bit. Uh, we don't really have a lot of the features that we saw, say, of medieval feudal systems. Um, you know, we don't in in most modern countries we don't burn people at the stake for witchcraft or heresy. You know, we don't literally have shadow slaves. Um, you know, we don't have indentured servitude. Well, I guess you could say we do in some ways. You know, we could say the prison system is a form of slavery or the, the student loan debt is a form of indentured servitude or something like that. Uh, but it's still watered down by the historical norm. So there, there are different manifestations of the state have withered away. Uh, but the state itself has never really withered away. It's, instead, it's been reinvented in different forms uh, where you still have uh, an exploitative um, elite or ruling class and an institution that has a monopoly on on coercion in, in the form of modern states and, and has an ideological superstructure of its own. Uh, as to why it's never withered away, I mean, one reason I think is that it's never really been called into question on the level that would be necessary for the state to wither away. Um if, if we look at, uh, you know, a lot of ideas and beliefs that people had in past times, there are certainly a lot of things people believed in past times that they aren't that aren't that common. Um, you know, one was slavery. Uh, you know, Aristotle defended slavery, He thought it was a natural condition, that there were just some people that that was just their natural spot in life. You know, just like you know we today might think, well, you know, there are some people who are just destined to be, you know, mediocre or sub-mediocre because they're just not very bright or, you know, whatever. Um, you know, Aristotle thought slavery was was, was a natural condition. Um, I, I, in fact, I think even John Locke, who was one of the early liberals, I think even he was not, uh, if I remember correctly, wasn't opposed to slavery per se, um. So uh, and yet very few people actually believe in, in slavery today. I mean, maybe in certain parts of the world or a handful of countries, they still do. But uh, that's certainly not the norm. Um, you know, we don't really in, in most of the developed countries, we don't really believe in in say religious persecution for um, uh, you know, witchcraft or apostasy or blasphemy or something like that. And that, the reason why is that most people just aren't that religious or don't really take religion that seriously. Or if they do, it's watered down or assumed a new form or something like that. And you can argue it's also been replaced by ideology, that ideology has become the new religion, uh, where, you know, nowadays, you know, you're you're not going to be, um, you know, fired from your job, say, if you deny one of the 39 articles, but you will if you – deny some, you know, principle of social justice or something like that. Um, So, you know, there and and, and there's been other variations of that as well. You know, I know at one point in the United States and some of the school systems uh, back during the uh, Cold War, uh, early Cold War period to graduate from high school, you had to swear a loyalty oath to the United States or something like that. So. But I think that the big picture wise, the problem is that people just haven't come to question the legitimacy of the state uh, in the same way that they may question the other things. Uh, you know, a good example is that uh, right now, uh, certainly in the United States and a number of other countries, people talk a lot about racism You know, and racism now has become something that's a taboo and. Discouraged, and you know somebody who is perceived as racist, or somebody that's perceived as being morally uh, suspect, or, or whatever. Uh, but nobody really thinks that about the state. I mean, imagine if you had a cultural ethos where being called a statist was as bad as being called a racist, or being called a Nazi, or being called a pedophile, or something like that. Right? Well, it's certainly possible to envision the possibility of a society like that, where if you get called a statist, you know, it's like being called Racist today, or being called pedophile, or maybe like being called a communist in the uh, 1950s America, or something like that, uh, or being called a blasphemer in the in the Islamic world, or or whatever. Um, uh, But that's you know. But I think that the level of uh, you know thought and uh, consciousness or awareness or whatever just really hasn't evolved to that level, uh, at least on this issue. Uh, People, for whatever reason, still. Accept the legitimacy of the state um, on on some level. Uh, although I think, I think it's interesting to see how even that has changed quite a bit in terms of what kinds of states are considered legitimate. If you were to round up a whole lot of people, certainly in the developed countries, you know, North America and Europe and all of that, and ask them, uh, well, you know, what does it mean to have a legitimate form of government? You know, is as an absolute monarchy where the king has absolute power is that a legitimate form of government a lot of people would probably say no is a military dictatorship legitimate they'd probably say no uh, depending on who you asked if it was if you said is communism legitimate they might say no uh probably most would say fascism is not a legitimate form of government or hereditary aristocracy or religious i mean a literal religious theocracy like they have in saudi arabia so it is true that all of these different kinds of models of the state have to a large degree been discredited or at least delegitimized in terms of popular opinion over time. But you have these new ideological frameworks that are used to legitimize modern states like this belief in mass democracy or the social contract or the general will or, uh, you know, all of the di- all, the, all the, the various liberal theories of the state. You know, those, those are really the. The idea of the divine right of kings as applies to modern states. So I think when if that were to fade, I think that's really um, uh, that that would be interesting because then then where where will how would the state go in and legitimize legitimize itself at that point.
0: So if it was the case that um, holding status views was held in the same esteem as being a Nazi or uh, a pedophile, for example would you then expect uh on that basis anarchism to flourish and if it were to do so um how might the state reemerge or do you think it would reemerge at some point w- what kind of conditions would need to be in place for its preservation or its eventual sort of re- or of the eventual sort of reemergence of the state
2: ah uh. Well, in a, in a cultural environment where being called statist was as call, bad as being called a pedophile or something, uh, we have so, something of a test market for that, and that's internet discussion forums. You know, you can you can go to uh, anarchist or libertarian discussion forums and see all the different types of anarchists and libertarians arguing over who is most statist or who is most fascist or who is most uh, something or other, and as well as um, you, you see a lot of arguments about what kind of cultural framework is most compatible with libertarianism or anarchism. That seems to be the big thing among a lot of American libertarians now is this, there's this huge back and forth over, uh, you know, should should libertarians be cultural conservatives or should they be cultural leftists or, you know, some, something else. Um, And I I think that, you know, in a world where being a statist is like being a Nazi or being a child molester or something like that, you'd still see all of these other arguments. You'd always, you know, you you would always you would see people with different beliefs about all kinds of things, accusing each other of being statist, you know, like, well, if you're you're not a vegetarian, you're eating meat, you're a statist, you know, you're you're a state that's imposing your your authoritarian will on animals or uh, or. Or about children's rights. Well, if you don't believe children should be able to, you know, run away from home on, at will and, you know, be shoe boys or something like that, um, well, then you're then you're being a statist. You know, I I, I would see those kinds of arguments perhaps taking place. Uh, as far as uh, how the state could reemerge, I, I think in crisis situations you would have people trying to exploit crisis situations to gain power and say, well, this anarchy thing didn't work, we need to go back to the state, or you'd have people inventing new types of states but not really calling it states. Um, you know, you, you saw that in the Spanish Civil War where you had the anarchists in the Spanish Civil War that, for as far as I can tell, more or less created states of their own but then claimed they weren't states, they were anarchies. Uh, You know, they're, they're not states because of the special way in which they're organized or something like that. Um, so I, I think you, you might see issues of that type as well uh of course the the left libertarian crowd you know one thing that they and the left anarchist socialist anarchists too they talk a lot about well you know the state is not the only form of oppression the state's not the only form of authoritarianism to some degree i think that's true in the sense that it's possible to you know, and, and and certainly there has been things like say tribal federations that weren't necessarily states in a conventional sense. Certainly not the way modern people would think of them, or even even weren't states compared to ancient forms of the state. Uh, but there was still violence, you know. There was still you know wife beating or child abuse or you know cruelty to animals or or uh, you know some, something something that somebody somewhere would you know disapprove of. Um, you know, of course, you could argue when well, that gets over into separate issues, that's not really about the state. That's just about you know, human nature and what, you know, what humans are capable of and what humans will or won't do in any circumstances. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, the gist of it is I think you'd still have you – know, in a world where the, the state is as taboo as, say, pedophilia is today, you'd have people you know, accusing each other of, of statism. Uh, for not sharing whatever, you know, value system they have about other things, and you'd also have people trying to uh, bring back the state in some particular form, you know, by appealing to whatever, Uh, and then you would have people trying to reinvent the state in some new form uh, by claiming it's not a state, it's something else. I mean, they do that now. I mean, if you look at all the different uh, anarchist and libertarian factions that you can find all over the place and, you know, social media groups and stuff, that's what they do now.
1: One of the you basically describe anarchism. You could describe it anarchism in name only. I mean, that's one. Of the, you know, this is the always the classic true Scotsman type idea <clears throat> that the, you know, the the Spanish anarchists had. Their anarchies are not states. You know, the, the state will reemerge uh, as this. Um, do you think we're? You think you think this is going to be stuck in this sort of pattern, so to speak, of you know, you know rhinos or you know, communists in name only. Um, th- this this tendency seems to be quite it keeps coming back and, and a lot of the left anarchists keep getting quickly co-opted by the state so like if you don't you know the state will gladly um, and that's one of the reasons to be suspicious of like BLM for example it's just a reason to uh, uh, go out and create a federal police force which you know I think in our earlier police episode you said putting the, char- the mouse in charge of the cheese I think was your term you, yeah. used to describe it um, there's a lot of there's a lot of tendencies that, you know, one if you think wife beating is worse than the state, um, you, the state will gladly go after hu- uh, husbands. Um, <laughs> there's a lot, all all these sorts of tendencies get exploited. So the state the state is in a kind of privileged position where you know any all it takes is one tendency. Or for the right, for example, they'll say, well, abortion or pornography or something like that. Well, now now the rights advocating stuff like that too. So it's, there's all these tendencies. So, so broadly speaking, you think the state is in some ways inevitable uh, or or highly likely, at least a state in some kind of form. Uh, Keith, this will be our final question here. Very interesting discussion.
2: Um, well, I'll, I'll say this. This is an analogy I like to use. I, I've mentioned this in other programs like this that I've done. I don't think you're a program, but maybe others. Um one of the things that i used to do uh, or have done with students is uh when i'm teaching social science classes is i'll show them a series of videos on all the different types of philosophies uh well not all of them but all the major political philosophies and like i'll show a t- series of about 10 or so short videos explaining what a modern liberal is what a classical liberal is what a conservative is what a communist is You know, what a socialist is, what an anarchist is, what a modern libertarian is, what a fascist is. Uh, And then they would have to write a paper explaining which one they agree with the most and why. Um, And I think that if we had a world where most people picked the anarchist position uh, where say anarchism was the world's most popular political philosophy, uh, I think we have some test markets for that as well. Um, One is in in the area of religion. Uh, Historically and in the world today, Christianity is the world's most popular religion uh, in the sense of the number of adherents and and, geographical areas where it's dominant and and all of that. Um, And but if we look at Christianity, it's, it's subdivided into many well it's it's subdivided into a number of major traditions and then many more minor traditions and then many many more sectarian traditions as well as splinter groups and heresies and heterodoxies and apostasies i mean you could even argue that something like the church of scientology or the church of satan or even these uh, atheist uh, sunday morning assemblies even those are spinoffs of christianity because people wouldn't see the need to gather on Sunday morning and talk about religion if it weren't for the influence of Christianity or they wouldn't be calling themselves a church, even if it's the church of Satan, if it wasn't for uh, the influence of Christianity, because it was, it was, it's Christianity who called their places of worship a church. Um, so, but if you, so if you, and if you look at all the different types of Christianity, you see that there are groups that first of all, don't recognize each other as being legitimate. Uh, you see groups that are, aren't even recognizable when you compare them with each other. If you compare, the, say, the, you know, the high church Anglicans or the Episcopalians, as we call them in the, in the States, if we compare them with, say, the lowbrow, you know, low church um, snake handlers and people like that, uh, or if we compare, say, the civil rights um, leaders like Martin Luther King, who were Christian ministers, with something like Christian identity, which is like a, a racist you know, kind of Aryanist uh, Christianity, like Christian Nazis or something, uh, or if you compare, say, the Metropolitan Community Church, which is a, which is a gay church, with, say, something like Fred Phelps, um, you know, Christianity is pretty broad. Um, and I think anarchism, as the world's most popular political philosophy, Would be very similar. You would have multiple major traditions, multiple minor, well, many more minor traditions, many, many subdivisions, sectarian groups, cults, splinters, heresies, heterodoxies, apostasies, and so forth. And just like Christianity also has to share space with other religions like Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and all that. Uh, a, a hegemonic and intellectually, a culturally hegemonic anarchism would still have to share space with other philosophies that hadn't, to, you know, died out entirely either. Uh, and then you'd get intermediary positions, you know, you'd get like hybrid philosophies, um, of different types. And then there's, so that's, you know, on a more intellectual, or cultural level, that's what anarchism would look like in a hegemonic sense. And then that's the, there's the big question well, what kind of institutions would, uh, anarchism produce and then that all gets down to well what are the prerequisites for for being an anarchist in the first place is it about abolishing the state is about is it about voluntarism on a general level is it about non-hierarchy is it about individualism is it about uh decentralism is it about mutual aid and voluntary cooperation you know is it about is it about being you know gay accepting or whatever you know i mean if you get a Group of people who claim to be anarchists together, um, and ask them what the criteria for being an anarchist are. It's it's going to be about like getting a bunch of Christians together and ask them asking them what the uh, criteria for being a Christian is. It's going to vary a lot compared, you know, depending on their area of emphasis or whatever tradition they come from. Um, but you know, how how do Christians deal with this? Well, you have Christianity that's fragmented into all these different kinds of church denominations uh you know ranging from you know large mega churches all the way down to uh people that are having church in their basement or somewhere in their garage um and i think anarchists you know communities and sectarian groups would be the same way you might have some large anarchist organizations and federations and then you might have others you know like some group of people living in a mountain and a a shack somewhere saying well we're the anarchist tribe of whatever our tribe of six or whatever we are Uh, And, you know, if you look at uh, religious institutions, you know, most countries, most Christian countries have separation of church and state. I mean, even if they don't have formal separation of church and state, they might as well because, you know, church attendance or participation isn't really compulsory in any serious way. Like I know over in England, I think you guys still have the, we do have the uh, Church of England, but I've read that only like 5% of people in England go to church or something like that. Uh, So in America, it's a lot more, even though we don't really have a state church. Um, But if you you have things like, uh, say, the Vatican, you know, you have the Vatican, which is technically a very centralized, hierarchical institution, certainly the Catholic Church is, but then its headquarters is this tiny little micro nation, Vatican City. And other than that, you know, on a worldwide basis, it's largely a voluntary international federation. So it's almost kind of. Kind of anarchistic in the sense that participation is largely voluntary, although internally it's also very hierarchical. Um, and then you have something like the World Council of Churches, which is um, a collection of Protestant denominations that are, you know, relatively ecumenical about a lot of things. But you know, but then it's it's a large international group, but it's also voluntar- voluntary. So I think anarchism politically, you know, would be a sort of a political version of that. In the sense, you'd have all kinds of anarchistic uh, communities and federations and associations and, you know, clubs and and activities uh, that would largely be, you know, voluntary or at least decentralized enough that people could not participate in them if they don't really want to on, on that, you know, exit costs are low enough to make them at least quasi-voluntary. Uh, and then even though you might have some Things, some projects that were large and even transnational or international or even global, um, it, it would it wouldn't be something that most people couldn't avoid if they really wanted to. Um, and so I think that's kind of what anarchism in a in a hegemonic sense would look like, more or less. You know, so we have some interesting you know test markets for that, I guess. Same th- or, you know, the same thing is, would be true of anarchist economics. I mean, there's this big debate about what would anarchist economics look like i think that one interesting model to look at is is food production or or food services Uh, you know in in the soviet system where you had a very uh, centralized system of food production and distribution you didn't even have supermarkets or, or restaurants or anything like that you just had what they called food store number one or food store number two or you might have had cafes and things like that i think in the latter years they started having more things like that but uh, in the United States, if you look at food service, we've got everything from corner convenience stores to big supermarket chains to, to uh, uh, restaurants you know, serving every possible taste. You know, some, some places sell, sell nothing but health food. Some places sell nothing but junk food. Uh, so I think you know, economic e- arrangements in an anarchistic uh, economy would be similar as well.
0: Thank you for your time, Keith. That's been interesting as always. Now I'd like to thank everybody for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please uh, share and subscribe. The more subscribers we get, the higher we get in the search rankings and the more people can uh, access this material. And if you'd like to contact the show for any reason, please contact us at mindcrimelibertyshow at gmail.com. That's mindcrimelibertyshow at gmail.com.